Let's start with yourself and your role uh, in Mind LLR and what that title is. Yeah, so my name's Isabel May. I am uh, a supported self-help practitioner at LLR Mind. Um, I am originally from near Cambridge and I moved up to Leicestershire about five years ago. Um, so I've lived in the area for a while um, and I've been working as a supported self-help practitioner for about six months now. Roughly. And that's just been changed. We've just been talking about this, but that's just been yes. changed. It used to be called active monitoring. Yes. So the service we we offer used to be called the active monitoring service. Um, but we've, as of the 1st of October, changed the name to supported self-help, um, which I think is a bit, lot more descriptive of what we're actually doing. So. Yeah, because previously the word active monitoring, although if you knew what it was, it did make sense. When you actually look at it now, um, supported self-help is a better description of what you do. Definitely. I, I, To most of my beneficiaries, I was already describing it as supported self-help because I think that's a lot more useful to describe what the service actually is as opposed to active monitoring, which really could be anything and sounds a little bit scary. Um so supported self-help is a lot more descriptive. And mind the charity are also starting an initiative called supported self-help. So you're now in line uh, yeah. with them as well. So national mind, the sort of the national mental health charity, as opposed to our local LLR mind, are starting a national version of supported self-help. Um, those in Leicestershire can still access the, the LLR mind supported self-help service. Um, but it basically means that areas that don't have a local mind offering the service are going to be able to access it as well. And let's talk about mine then. Um, because when I said today I had you coming on from Mind, everyone's like, oh, I go on their website all the time to yeah. look at the, uh, and I was like, I'm not sure if that is the same, the same one. I know it's, it's yeah, it's very similar, mm-hmm. um, but people was like, no, it'd be good to have someone on because they can talk about all through all the self-help guides on, mm-hmm. the, on the website and all the resources that all of the services signpost to. Mm. And so what is the difference between Mind LLR and Mind the Charity? Yeah, so... Mind is a federated system. It's uh, a similar system to charities like Age UK and and organisations like that. Effectively, we have a national sort of umbrella charity. So national mind focus for the most part on raising awareness, um, affecting policy, uh, collecting data about mental health across the country. Um, and generally, although supported self-help is is a bit of an exception at the moment or beginning to be, um, it is the local minds that provide services. So um, LLR Mind, Leicester, Leicester and Rutland Mind came out of... Um, Leicester, Leicester and Rutland didn't have a mind charity, didn't have a local mind for a really long time. And we found that the charities around the area, so Coventry and Warwickshire, Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire, were getting a lot of queries from people in our local area asking for support and they couldn't they couldn't really provide it because their funding is for their area specifically. So LLR Mind has spun out of Coventry and Warwickshire Mind to be looking at the particular needs of people in LLR, whereas the national charity mind focuses on the whole country and and looks a lot more broadly at policy local minds like LLR are the ones on the ground uh supporting people day to day are you clusters in IAP service no we're not we're not um supported self-help isn't therapy it's not counseling um and we try and make that distinction because while but we the research shows that we have roughly the same outcomes as an IAP service. Um, 
but it's not a diet service. No. I guess we'll talk about how it works in a second and the, the methodology used uh, mm-hmm. within that. But let's start off with yourself. Let's go back mm-hmm. to your early years. You say you grew up in Cambridge. So how yes. do you go from Cambridge to Leicestershire and what yes. does that transition look like? Absolutely. So yeah, I grew up, um, I grew up in Cambridge. Well, I went to school in Cambridge. I come from a little town called Royston in northwest Hertfordshire, but nobody knows where that is unless you're from the area. So Where's I usually, Hertfordshire? Uh, yeah, northwest, uh, northeast Hertfordshire. Sorry. Where, where even is that in the country? Where am I looking near? Um, north of London. So if you think about Cambridge, London, just a little bit south of London, effectively. So northeast Hertfordshire. Um, if you've ever heard of Stevenage. It's near there, but most people don't want to say they're from Stevenage. Yeah, you can tell I don't have very good geography knowledge, so it's, it's always good to pick up these uh, little tidbits. Very fair. So yeah, no, I'm from Royston in northeast Hertfordshire. Um, I went to school in Cambridge, so I usually tell people I'm from Cambridge. Um, I moved to Leicester about five years ago now. Um, and I moved for a job, um, nothing to do with the voluntary sector or mental health or anything like that. I actually worked in customer service for an energy company for four and a bit years. Um, do you want to give that particular energy service a shout out or, or not? <laughs> uh, I can do. Um, I, I worked for Octopus Energy. I moved to Leicester to work for Octopus. It was an absolutely wonderful place to work. Um, difficult, particularly over the last, I, I left last November Obviously, the last few years I was there was incredibly difficult, Um, but I worked in customer service. Um, First, as uh, Octopus called their sort of people who are on the phones talking to people every day, energy specialists. So I started as an energy specialist. I became a team leader and then I became an operations manager and I was an operations manager for about a year before I left. Was that picking up the cost of living crisis as well? And so, yeah, I can imagine that you got a lot of flack from customers, especially. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of my friends still work there and my partner still works there. Um, So I I still see day to day how hard they're working and and the sort of stuff that they're facing. Um, They get a lot of flack. People are worried. And that's honestly completely fair that people are worried. Um, And... They take, sometimes, not everybody, sometimes they take it out on the person who's at the end of the phone, which isn't fair, but also I completely understand where that comes from when when things are so difficult. So we ended up in customer service in the energy industry, particularly over the last two years that I was there, we end up having a lot of mental health conversations with people because people don't know where else to turn. They call their energy supplier because they're worried about their bill. And if they get somebody on the end of the phone who is empathetic and listens to them, often a lot more comes out and they start talking about not just their bills and not just, you know, this particular bill that they've called to talk about, but, every, you know, all the other bills that they have to look at and then everything else that's going on in their lives. So you end up having a lot of those mental health conversations in that role. And did that teach you any important skills then? I think so. I think ultimately that's what ended me up in the role that I'm in now and on on the path that I'm on now um because I I learned to be I learned to show that empathy over the phone and I just really felt for those people and I I felt for the people who were calling us up because they didn't have anywhere else to turn you wouldn't think that people would call their energy supplier for a conversation about mental health but a lot of the time they don't know where else to call and this is the thing that's affecting their mental health right now. So they call us and then everything comes out. So yeah, I kind of learned to have a lot of those conversations 
And that's kind of what made me realize, oh, actually, this is the direction I want to go in. Yeah, we've recently had a, a paramedic on the podcast mm. and a lot of the similar things that you've just said have come up in their line of work where people will, will ring up and they will either speak to the call handler because mm. they want to speak to someone or they will regularly call and then report injuries or illnesses that aren't necessarily real mm. to have a crew come out and speak to them. Um, and so, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to come from the energy supplier, but that does make sense along those themes. And is it with elderly people or is it all types of people across all walks of life all types of people across all walks of life um i think there probably was a, a slight skew towards elderly people particularly people who maybe had recently lost a lost a partner and it's their partner who was previously dealing with the bills and and dealt with all of that stuff we would get people calling us up saying you know, I, I don't know what to do. They used to handle all of this. I'm really scared and I'm I'm really confused. And we would help talk them through, okay, like that's absolutely understandable. How can we how can we help make this a little bit clearer for you? Um, but really, you know, we got the full gambit from people, you know, 18 year olds moving out for the first time on their own who didn't know what to do, um, to, you know, people with young kids who were struggling to keep the house warm, to elderly people who, you know, needed the heat on all the time and were then struggling with the resulting bills. So really the full gambit of people. I'm just trying to see in my head how that goes then from mm. from the energy company to Mind LR. Did you have an interest in psychology or, or those type of uh, topics before you went into that, that job? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always, um, I've always had an interest in, in mental health and kind of the, I guess, the... Um, the gaps in the system that there are currently and what are the solutions to filling those gaps. I, I've had some, my own personal mental health, um, issues that I've gone through sort of since I was a teenager and that has always put mental health on the map for me. And I, you know, it's something I always thought about doing, but out of uni, I found a job at Octopus and I was very happy there. So I was like, I'm just going to stay here. When I left Octopus, I sat down and I thought, okay, what do I care about? Like, what was it that I really enjoyed about that job? What was it that I maybe didn't enjoy so much? And what is it that I'm passionate about? And I realized I'm passionate about helping people and I'm passionate about helping people specifically in regards to their mental health based on my own experience, my friends' experiences, and also the experience of the people I spoke to at Octopus. What did you study at university? I studied philosophy at my undergrad. I studied philosophy at the University of Reading. And then did you go on to do a master's somewhere else? No. It, well, oh. yes. Now, now I am oh, doing okay. a master's somewhere else. <laughs> I, I saw that on your LinkedIn, that's all. And yes. so um, that's what I was going to... Then I thought, oh, no, I've got it wrong. But, no, um, no, no, you're right. And what's your master's in at the moment? So I'm currently studying my master's. Though The reason I said that is because there was a big gap between oh, okay. my, my undergrad. I finished my undergrad about five years ago. And now I am starting... Um, uh, I've recently started my master's in counselling and psychotherapy at the University of Kiel. Um, so quite a way away from, from Reading. Um, but yeah, no, I, I've recently started counselling and psychotherapy masters with the aim to be a, to be a therapist at the end of that. Again, very poor with geography, Leicestershire. You, you say you're at Kiel. Yeah. How far away is that? Um, it's in Staffordshire. Uh, I had not heard of it before I went to uni there either. Um, it is about an hour and a half away drive if the traffic's okay. Um, and, but I only need to be up there once a week. Um, so it's not, not too bad. I go on a Wednesday. 
What, what made you choose the university route for that? Because I don't know if you've looked at like mm-hmm. the vocational route, like the CPCAB. And I think when we spoke on the phone, mm. um, on Zoom, when we set up as an organisation, we was having that chat then, yeah. CPCAB route versus university. And it seems that you've chose university route. Um, Definitely. Yeah, talk us through that choice. And Yeah, I... To be honest, at the beginning, I just found the whole thing very confusing and I found it confusing to figure out, you know, what is the right route for me? What direction do I want to go in? And I'm I'm currently, you know, I'm at uni with a lot of people who have done either like a level two or a level three or a graduate certificate in counselling. They've done that already and I'm going straight into the master's. I, to be honest, I think I'm, it's probably because I'm very comfortable with academics. I enjoyed my first degree I enjoyed sort of the theory and the learning behind that and I know that I do well in a university setting um just me personally I do pretty well in a university setting and I I'm really sure that this is what I want to do and I thought well I'll do a master's eventually anyway I may as well go for it now um also the course at Keele is it's a really highly regarded master's course in counseling and psychotherapy um it's person-centered which is the the modality that I really want to at least start with and begin with um and yeah I just thought I, I looked at the university and I thought yeah no this is this feels like a fit for me this feels like a good good thing for me to do so coming out of that will you be able to go straight into practice yeah so as part of the training um we have to do 100 um placement hours so Uh, I'm currently in the process of trying to figure out where to do my 100 placement hours. Um, And yeah, once we come out of it, we are graduate members of the BACP. um, So the British Association of Counselling and Psychotherapy. Um, And I will be able to, you know, practice as as a graduate therapist at that point. You're going to have a huge head start, though, being in the mm. setting that you're in now and, and learning those soft skills and especially yeah. those interpersonal skills and those communication skills of eye contact and unconditional yeah. positive regard and, and, and some of those core counselling techniques. You're going to be drilling them down to a T already. So are you confident that this has given you a step up, basically, a leg up, if you like? Yes, absolutely. I see what you did there. Um, yeah, I I think I'm learning so much from my current role at the moment because, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later, but supported self-help while it is not counselling obviously people come to you and and they may not have spoken to anybody about the things that they're going through before and while we have tools and we have you know things that we'll work on with them we are also there to listen at least for part of the time and the skills that I've learned listening to people and giving them the space to talk about what they need to talk about um, I think has been invaluable for the course that I'm now on and yeah I do feel like I I, I'm not nervous at all going into those sessions because I do this every day like I I do it at work I can do something similar but slightly different at uni so yeah so you've got the academics nailed down you've got your peel structure or whatever Mm -hmm. it is that they use now you've got your citing your referencing mm-hmm. in the back of your head and you've also got the confidence to go into the setting and, and mm. do what you're doing so I think that puts you in a very good position to take the world head on. I'm really excited yeah no I mean I've only been there for like a month at the doing the masters at this point but it's been great so far and I'm really excited for the next couple of years. So, yeah. Does everyone on your course want to get into doing psychotherapy and counselling or do people do it to then aim to do something else I'm mm. just not sure how that works for the most part they they want to be you know counsellors psychotherapists um 
There are some people who work in, say, HR or something like that who want the counselling skills but aren't necessarily planning on going on and being practising counsellors going forwards. Um, There's a couple of police officers on my course who expect to remain police officers after the course, but they will then have those skills to be able to help people. So it is really... It's a bit of a mixed bag, but for the most, for the vast majority, all aiming to be counsellors or psychotherapists. And how did you find Mind LLR then? So you're mm. an octopus. Did you have a, a break or did you apply for it whilst you was there? I had a break. So I left Octopus November of last year. Um, and I, I really wanted, I wanted a bit of a break. It was an amazing place to work, but it was very intense for the last, particularly the last two years yeah, that I was working imagine. there. With the energy crisis, um, I was I was an operations manager there. There was a huge amount of pressure to, you know, to help people. And, and there are limits, particularly in a role like that, there are really are limits to what you can do to help people um, as hard as they try and that they're still trying. And it was it was exhausting. So I took I took some time off. I took some time to think about what it was I really wanted to do and what I really wanted to work on. Um, I thought about the things I loved about my job and the things I wanted to keep. So I love helping people. I love I love learning. That was a big thing for me. I want to be continuously learning new skills, learning new information, and I wanted to find something where I could keep learning and keep growing. Um, and that's what sort of pushed me in the, and I, I've always considered working in charity. I thought about it and looked at it after uni. It just, at the time I found the job at Octopus and it, I, you know, didn't go the charity route, but it's something I had always thought about. I, I actually applied for the uni course first before I found the job at Mind. Um, I applied for the, for the counseling course after thinking, you know, what's a job where I can help people and learn keep learning for the rest of my life I thought well counseling really easily fits into that box I also think it's something that I kind of have some skills that I would naturally be quite good at um so I applied for that in January and then I was just I was job searching all that time and you know looking for something to go forward with and I thought I I remember thinking I literally just thought ah actually you know what I haven't looked at mind I want to work in mental health. Why have I not looked at the Mind website? And me, like everybody else, thought like, oh, Mind is one big charity. So I looked on the Mind website, looked at their careers page, um, and saw that there was a um, an opening at LLR Mind for, at the time it was for a uh, business administration, uh, business administration manager, I believe, um, and there were two jobs that were going at the time, neither of which was the active monitoring practitioner, which is what it was then called, now supported self-help practitioner. Um, the So they the same day that I looked at the website, they were having an information session on Teams. Um, I just happened to look at it, like literally earlier the same day. This is what I call fate. <laughs> yes, a little bit. So I looked at it the same day and I thought like, oh, I absolutely have to go to that information session. Um, I hope it's not too late. I popped them an email. 
Rachel, who is now my manager, um, popped me an email back saying like, no, it's not too late. Like, here's the link. Definitely come along. Is this going to lead to you saying, and you was the only person in that information session? I was not. So that, that they had to give it to you. They just <laughs> said, well, you're the only option. Um, no, there are a few of us in that information session. But in the information session, they talked about this active monitoring practitioner role, which at the t- like I had not found on the website. Um, I knew I wanted to work in mental health. I, I really like the idea of working for mind, but that job was not, I couldn't find it on the website for whatever reason. And Rachel started talking about the active monitoring role and what that looked like. And I was like, oh, that's, that's for me. You know, the business administration side of things sounds interesting, but I want to be working directly with people if I can. So I was like, active monitoring practitioner and that's for me I applied I think I applied the next day and then went for an interview a week or two later and found out I got the job and then there was a there was a little bit of time in between learning that I got on the job and then actually starting um just because this is our active monitoring supported self-help was our very first big support service that we're offering and they just needed a bit of time to get everything set up. So I started early April. How new is Mind LLR? Because I've been in the VCSE sector mm. in Leicestershire for a couple of years now. And until we connected on email back in April or May, mm-hmm. um, I'd never heard of Mind LLR. Mm. So is it a relatively new um, invention? Yes. So there, and I don't know the full story about about all of this, and I the dates I'm not going to get 100% right. But my understanding is um, there are a couple of areas of mind that uh, a couple areas of Leicestershire that had their own mind organisation um, up until 2016. So they had their own local minds. I think there was one that was based in Hinkley, based on what people have told me, um, but for whatever reason, those charities were not self-sustaining. They couldn't keep going. They ran out of money. Um, so for a very long time, Leicestershire didn't have a mine, a local mind at all. Um, that led to people getting in touch with mines nearby and they set up a working group. I believe that working group sort of set up by the other mines to look at the provision in LLR was set up a couple of years ago now. I don't know the exact dates. Um, Rachel Knott, who is my manager, started working for the organization maybe 18 months to two years ago. Uh, I'm going to get all these dates wrong. Um, and then she, uh, she was working on it kind of from the business side and getting funding and, and working on all of those sorts of things. Um, Ian came on board later on, um, and started working with Rachel on, on the funding and, and everything like that. And then for a long time, for, I don't know, six months or so, it was just the two of them. And that was LLR Mind and they didn't have any public facing services at that point. Um, They then started hiring for the then active monitoring service and brought me and my two colleagues who are supported self-help practitioners and also our our administrator, Manlan, uh, brought those guys on board and we all started on the 3rd of April this year so what made you do the podcast and not the other two <laughs> um I I am the person who covers for Northwest Leicestershire oh, so okay. I uh we we each have our areas I cover Charnwood Northwest Leicestershire and Hinkley and Bosworth 
Um, so you guys it's quite sit a large area, then, area for you to cover. Yeah, I, I mean, we don't travel around or anything like that. It's just we are, for the most part, responsible for referrals in that area, for building relationships with the other, um, you know, the others in the charity sector um and those working in the nhs people working in mental health in the area um and i do we do face to face we do a small number of face to face uh, supported self help sessions at a location in each of those areas so i only have to go to one location in each so it's not it's not too bad i'm not driving all over sort of northwest leicestershire when you said at a location, it made it sound really top secret, like it was some like FBI thing. I'm not, not asking all. for that, but just the way that you said it, I thought, wow, there's, there's something going on. <laughs> um, Marlene Reed Center in, in Northwest Leicestershire. They got Paul Fagan. Do mm. you know Paul Fagan? He, he's the, guy, he's the, the guy that manages it. Yeah, 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 I've probably seen him around when I'm there. Um, Very good guy. A friend of the podcast, friend of the show. Amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so in Northwest Leicestershire, I... I'm generally at um, the Marling Reed Center if people want face-to-face appointments. So, and then I have places in uh, Le- uh, Loughborough and Hinkley that I also go to. So the Wellbeing Center in Loughborough. Oh, Helen at the cafe. Yes, yeah, yeah. no Helen well. Another friend of the show. Yes, um, and and Emily and Joe and all of those guys. Um, and then I also, I work out of Pathways at Hinkley Baptist Church. Um, not, not a friend of the show. We don't not know a friend of the ones, show so. yet, no. Um, but yeah, no, those are, those are the main locations that I work out of. So it's not as if I'm kind of going from one end to the other. It's very much... Um, people in those locations, if they want face-to-face supported self-help sessions, they can come there. Otherwise, we offer, you know, phone and video sessions. So, Are many people choosing face-to-face now because of, you know, a lot of people either really want it because they want that human interaction mm. or they really don't want it. And I just yeah. wondered if you know, you know, statistically in your head, not, yeah. not asking for specifics of what people choose to do face-to-face mm. compared to those that don't. I'm glad you're not asking for specifics because I wouldn't know them. I think in general, you're completely right that it's either really, really want them or really, really don't. It's a small number who want face-to-face. Um, the I usually only have one or two people at a time that I'm seeing in each of those locations. Um, so that's out of a caseload of about you know, around about 25 people. So I'll have one or two in each location. So I don't know, maybe a quarter. I'm not, I I have no idea how accurate that is, but a small number. So it used to be called active monitoring, but it's now called supported Mm -hmm. self-help. What is supported self-help for those that that don't know? Absolutely. I like to break it into the two different parts to explain a little bit about what it is. So the overall, it is a six-week program of supported self-help where a person will work with either myself or one of my colleagues to gain skills, strategies, and learn about ways of coping with a range of mental health conditions. So um, there are a number of different things that we can we can speak to people about and that we can support with. Um, I will, there are eight different pathways at the moment. So the ones we've got, we've got depression and low mood, anxiety and panic attacks, uh, grief and loss, low self-esteem, managing stress, managing anger, 
loneliness and feeling lonely and understanding menopause. Um, I am really surprised that I remembered all of those off the top no, of my that, head. that was very good. I'm very um, impressed. But those, and those are kind of the main pathways that we look at with somebody. They pick one of those pathways to work down and that moves us on to the, the self-help um, part of it. So each pathway has a workbook. The workbook includes information strategies and exercises to support somebody's mental health. Understanding that not every exercise is going to work for every person. We're all different and our mental health needs are different. Um, So somebody might try, you know, somebody might try a particular breathing exercise and think, yes, this is really helped me with my anxiety. I feel calmer. I feel more able to cope with things. Somebody else might think focusing on my breathing this much is making me more anxious. Um, And so the workbooks are designed to accommodate that. They're designed to accommodate, okay, this didn't really work for you. Absolutely fine. You gave it a go. That's amazing. Let's try something else. So we have the pathways that contain all of that stuff. Um, We also have a bunch of supplementary materials on a range of different topics. Just for example, we have one called, we have one called sleeping better. We have one called um, breaking unhelpful thought patterns, um, mindfulness, extra materials on various different areas. And you work with your practitioner to come up with we call it a bespoke toolbox a bespoke toolbox of coping strategies that work for you specifically um and so the self-help materials are the workbooks the supplementary materials for people to go away and try out the exercises on their own the supported side of it is the meetings with myself or one of my colleagues as as supported self-help practitioners so it's a six-week program we have a 40-minute um a 40 minute assessment to make sure this is the right thing for you. You understand kind of what, what supported self-help is and what it isn't almost had active monitoring there. Um, what supported self-help is and what it isn't. Um, the, uh, and also to figure out, you know, if this is something you want to continue with, what pathway makes the most sense for you based on where you are at the moment. Um, that is a 40 minute session. We then have five follow-up sessions with people, which are 20 minutes long to talk about how are you finding the exercises, answer any questions that people have, and really just give them that support and that guidance while they work through the self-help materials. So that's the way I like to describe it. I like to split it up into its two parts. Uh, self-help is the materials, the workbooks, things that people sort of take away and really own doing and the supported part is the fact that myself or one of my colleagues are there to guide them through that process and offer them that support while they while they do that because it's tough to do the self-help materials on your own anybody can go get a book from you know go to the bookshop get a self look at the self-help shelf and grab a book off of it so many of us won't finish that we'll put it down we'll find oh this isn't really helpful and throw it to the side the difference with supported self-help is that we're there to help keep things going when maybe the first thing you try didn't work. So, All of those pathways, as you call them, mm. are all primary mental health conditions, things mm-hmm. that you could go to your GP for. Mm. Is this focused towards them, people who are in that primary mental health care system and not tailored towards those on the secondary end of the spectrum, things like psychosis, mm-hmm. bipolar? Um, yeah, is there an inclusion criteria is where I'm getting at? 
Absolutely. It's it's very much designed for um, early intervention, sort of mild to moderate um, mental health concerns. That is what the self-help, supported self-help program is designed as. Um, it is an early intervention and it's not for people who are maybe dealing with those more serious mental health concerns. We, but we generally say if somebody is able to um, safely benefit from supported self-help, there's no reason somebody can't access the service while also seeking other support. We know waiting lists are really long at the moment. We know that getting the support for those sort of those secondary that secondary support is can be really hard in some circumstances. And as long as somebody, if somebody's going to benefit from it, as long as they can safely engage with the service, we're more than happy to at least have a conversation with them about accessing it. So the only inclusion criteria at the moment is that they're over the age of 18 living in Leicestershire. Um, services for Leicester City and Rutland will be up very soon. They're not up right now. Um, but Anybody over the age of 18 in Leicestershire can access the service if they are willing to in- willing and able to engage with it. Which is the exact same criteria as our service, mm-hmm. 18 plus living in Leicestershire. And I really like what you said about the bespoke toolkit because mm-hmm. there's so many different modalities, DBT, mm. dialectal behavioral therapy, CFT, compassionate focus therapy. Then you've got psychoanalysis, person-centered, you know, all this stuff. And, and as someone, as a practitioner, I've also found that not one size fits all. You, you find yourself pinching bits from here, there and everywhere. Um, whereas that bespoke toolkit, mm. you, that allowed you to do that. Um, yeah. And, and do you find that works best? It's it's been working really well for for me and and my beneficiaries. I, I feel like it's been working. The outcomes have been good, and it just gives us that flexibility. Um, like you said, you know, the course I'm doing at the moment is person centered, um, but you find all the time thinking like, oh, well, maybe I can steal this bit from DBT, or I can steal this bit from. Uh, CBT or something along those lines and it this said no one ever said no (laughs) No, no, one ever probably not with CBT I'm trained in CBT and and it it seems now that um, a lot of people view it as just this thing which is Mm. so simple that can't fix you and but the idea is that on a low level you know it rewires how you think and restructures that and so at a simplified basis I I guess yeah you could have Mm. that um, that view of it but no I'm still a fan of it yeah it is because of the way that it it can be measured as well. It's gold yeah. standard. Um, that's, I think, what, what puts it out Definitely. there so much. My my take on CBT is that I, I think it works really well for some people. I don't think it necessarily works as well for everybody as we try and get it to work. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I think for some people it works really well. Um, but And and our, our course is the supported self-help self-help materials are cbt based and i find that for the people i'm working with for the issues we're working with it is really effective for people to just kind of shift their thinking in terms of you know what they're dealing with and i've seen some really really positive outcomes in six weeks isn't a particularly long time but i've seen some people really really benefit from that yeah, there's so many different types of, of CBT now. You mm. have eCBT and then mm-hmm. CBT hyphen S for schizophrenia that's mm. tailored towards CBT. Yeah. Do you have any particular interests in um, in modalities yourself? Is there anything that you lean towards outside yeah. of university? In university, I'm doing person-centered. So Carl Rogers, person-centered, unconditional positive regard, um, congruence, all of those lovely words. Um, I think that person-centered... 
I'm really glad that my base is going to be in person centered. I'm really glad that I kind of get that grounding in how to, how to build that therapeutic relationship, which is all about, you know, that's effectively what person centered is about. I can see myself definitely doing qualifications in potentially in CBT or I'm really interested in EMDR. Um, oh, okay, the, the eye movement desensitization. Yeah, I've heard some. Uh, there's some really interesting research going on about it at the moment, and I've heard, you know, I uh, I've heard really positive things from people who have received EMDR. So I can see myself doing some training in that in the future potentially. But at the moment, I'm very much immersed in in uni in the person centered model and at work in that those sort of CBT based um sort of person-centered inspired things from the from the supported self-help materials i don't know that much about emdr but i think it's crazy especially for things like ptsd Mm. how a flashing light in a dark room Mm. can uh can change the way that you think and perceive things especially past trauma definitely um have you looked much into like compassionate focus therapy with paul gilbert or schema focus therapy i really haven't i i, I they're just two like sidelines absolutely that I, I would recommend them and also I have to read that. ifs internal family systems which is yes. something new that i've not heard of and then suddenly it's like a huge wave yeah. crashing down and everyone's like look into ifs look into ifs yeah. um and so i just wondered if you looked into that and i i've definitely heard of ifs i have not done the reading list I've got for uni is a mile long and I want to do all this extra reading on all of these different modalities, but I've got an essay due on the 1st of November. So right now I'm reading for that essay specifically, but as I, as I go in my career, like I'm really excited to get to learn about all these different ways of doing therapy and all these different things that we it's can try. Feel, like it's crazy. It really is. And yeah. I, a lot of the things I feel are repeated and then you have to try and remember all the different names, all the different yeah. descriptions. So like you have archetypes mm-hmm. and you have like the hero and all that stuff. And then in IFS, you have like multiple sub-personalities yeah. or, or families and it's how the hell am I ever going to remember all of this stuff? So when yeah. you say it's, it's something that you've gone into because you feel like you'd learn it forever yeah that is 100 percent true I feel. absolutely i think it would take you know multiple lifetimes and yeah. then as, as society is changing so when i was studying we had nothing to do with mm. um the new wave of of genders and all the new yeah. uh, new assigned genders that, that people can identify with and then now they teach whole modules on that absolutely and and again so as, as society changes psychology has to change to keep up absolutely with that. absolutely have you yeah. found any of that creeping into the work that you do already that where you're having to take a step back and, and go wow i know nothing about this as a person and, and how do i yeah. integrate that absolutely i i've met so many different people doing supportive self-help and i've learned so much from the people that i the people that I work with who many of whom are from really different backgrounds than I am and I I learn a bit about their experience and the things that they're struggling with um you know people who are what springs to mind is particularly people who are dealing with the benefit system at the moment I think I had a generalized understanding before about like yeah the benefit system is really difficult to deal with now I've really seen the day-to-day struggle that people have with it and the, the you know, trials and tribulations. And I've learned so much about that and how that, and the impact that can have on people's mental health. And, you know, that comes along, that is similar to issues about race and issues about, you know, LGBTQ identities. And I learn from each person that I meet their specific identity what they specifically are dealing with um and hopefully I 
learn from it and can then take it forward and help people in the future who I meet who have similar things going on. I find in this line of work, you almost take on loads of different roles that you don't expect. And yeah. sometimes you can be a social worker, mm-hmm. a friend, a mother, you know, a, a counsellor, um, mm. those type of things. And and when you talk about the benefit system with that, that's a, a prime example of how mm. much you learn about loads of different things. Yeah. And and through doing this for the last couple of years, people will say to me, wow, you've got such a vast knowledge on loads mm. of different areas. And it's like, well, because I spend most of my time talking to people and all of these people each day come with a different story with something else that they're involved with. And personal independence payment, going back to the benefits system, is one which is a minefield. Mm. Um, And and a lot of people come to us and they'll say, can you help me fill out this form? And so gone away and done some further training on filling out those forms. And then someone won't get the benefit who's Mm. got, literally doesn't have function in one arm. And then someone else will get it who's got low level depression but has got loads of support in medical evidence mm. uh, from their from their consultant um, yeah you know if they was getting a consultant at that low level then well done to them but mm. you know from their gp that was probably a poor example on my part but hopefully it illustrates such the difference between the the, the benefit system of, of how it doesn't always seem mm. to work um and i think it's like 70 percent of people that don't get it the first time pit they yeah. if they do a mandatory reconsideration yeah. they then get it the if appeal process yeah. yeah and if you're getting something so wrong that 70 percent of those appeals succeed surely it just shows you that the initial review of that was is just a bit poor as a process yeah absolutely and you know like I said I think I understood that broadly before but you really see you see how it affects people you see how it affects people on a day-to-day basis you see the effect it has on their mental health which is something that I didn't realize before and that's that's just one example of the like you said you meet so many different people with so many different experiences you kind of en- end up being uh like a mini expert on so many different issues and that's something I really enjoy about the work that that we do so yeah and I know so many people that can also relate like in this mm. industry and almost sometimes it, your brain you're like how, how have I actually picked that mm. up and you have a, a five minute conversation and suddenly you can talk yeah. about it to someone else and that's what I really really enjoy yeah it makes you feel like a superhuman at times mm. I guess but let's bring it back to what used to be called active yes. monitor and supportive self-help um, how does someone access that? Yeah, so uh, people can self-refer through our website. So our website is llrmind.org. Um, and if you go to the, there's like a bar along the top. Um, and if you go into services, I think it's as of recording, it is still listed as active monitoring. Shortly, it will be updated to be supported self-help on the website. Um, and you can self-refer through the website there. We also have a phone number on the website. Do I remember it off by heart? Definitely not. Um, we have... It would all be in the, the description, though, for this yes. Spotify episode. Also on Apple Music and then Apple Podcasts. Yeah. No, no, Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts as well. So I'll make Amazing. that easier for you. Phone number will be in the description. Amazing. Um, can professionals refer into active monitoring? Absolutely. So we have a professional referral service as well. Uh, pretty much exactly the same way. Have a look on the website. There's one button for self-referral. There's one button for professional referral. So anybody is welcome to refer with, obviously with the consent of the person that they're referring. Was this Mind um, LLR's first initiative, if you like? Was this the first thing that, that they're doing as an organization? First big one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had done some workplace wellbeing bits and pieces before, but this is the first sort of big service that we've we've put out there and the first public facing service that we've put out there. 
do you have any statistics or um like points on efficacy of, of how well it's working that you can bring in or if you, again not not expecting you to remember them you can you can have a look if you want if, if you give anything me, you can bring up if you give me a minute then yes there's a, a powerpoint as well that you may want me to send you um mm. which is it's collated by a guy called barney thorne who works for leicester police mm. um and the office for national statistics um went to the police force um and said, we want you to start and collect data mm. on, I think it was five areas of what happens with suicide. Yeah. So like age, gender, those type of things. Mm -hmm. And then what the police did is they they went, actually, no, we're going to do this better than that. And I think mm. they now collate like 40 or 50 areas of, uh, of, of information regarding suicide. And they was the first police force to do that. And they call it something like active suicide monitoring. Mm. <laughs> which is maybe another example of why active monitoring wasn't the best the best De name. demonstrates why supported self-help maybe makes a bit more sense absolutely and so oh, yeah that they break it down for llr and mm. for northwest so um suicides in llr in 2018 was 71 2019 was 75 2020 was 95 and then 2021 was 96 mm. so you'd got a jump of of 20 from 2019 but we all know what happened in 2020 and 2021 yeah, of course. With coronavirus. And then 2022, it jumps even higher to 129 in LLR. Mm. And then 2023, we're at 97 at the moment. But that's not as high as where we was this time last year. Mm. Um, then if you look at um, suicides just for Northwest, 2015-5, 2016-2, 2017-5, -hmm. and then skips 2019, you've got 10, 2020-11. Then this year already in Northwest in 2023, we're at 12 already. Um, as, as a service, we're focused towards, uh, well, our, our main area, age range, sorry, is 35 to 52. In LLR, the biggest age for suicide is 45 to 54 mm. in the northwest um it's 35 to 44 right so we're really hitting that that demographic which is you know suffering the most in northwest are the people that come through our doors the most do you know anything about age ranges for yourself of, of um what the most typical age is i'm not sure off sort of statistically off the top of my head we're definitely getting a lot of older older adults um a lot of people in that sort of 50 to 70 age bracket but we're seeing people uh you know all across the age range spectrum i have sessions with you know people who have just turned 18 and then i'll have one with somebody who's you know celebrating their 80th birthday next week um and it really i think shows you know they, those statistics um there are people across that age range who who really experience that. And I think people tend to be more aware of mental health issues in, in a younger population, but it really shines a light on the fact that older adults and need that support as well. And also how that differs in, in the different areas of Leicestershire, whereas here it's slightly, sounds like it's slightly younger. In, in LLR as well, it's 73% male, mm. but then Northwest it's 79% male mm -hmm. uh, for those suicide rates as well. Mm. Um, then, then you can get into looking at the whole, if they're in contact with mental health services, open to mental health services. And majority of the people that are um, committing suicide are not engaged with mental health services. Mm. And that shows that the mental health services, when they're there, you know, there is a support package and it is it is working um, as such. So that, that's the good thing. If you look at depression prevalence over 2022 to 2023, mm. 
the national average was uh, 13.29% of the population would meet um, a diagnostic criteria for depression. Yeah. Um, for Leicestershire, that was 13.58%, so mm. a little bit higher than the national average. But then if you go specifically to the Northwest, uh, 14,644 people meet the um, diagnostic t- criteria for depression, which is 15.67%. Mm. So essentially we're over 2% higher for the rates of depression in Northwest than what yeah. the rest of the rest of the country are. And, and that's again, something which is quite r- worrying. We're also a lot higher on the level of admission to mm. hospital for intentional self-harm. So um, f- per 100,000 people in the population, there's 165.7 people admitted yeah. to hospital um, that have a Northwest Leicestershire postcode. Mm. So, yeah, so in, in terms of this area, especially the Northwest, there is a high prevalence and rates of mental health issues. Absolutely. And the Northwest is um, one of the areas we specifically focus on with supported self help. Um, and Northwest Leicestershire, fo- really focusing on that. In terms of Leicestershire as a whole, so these statistics are from uh, August, so they're not 100% up to date, but as of August, um, 99% of beneficiaries showed a, an improvement on at least one of their well-being measures. So we assess people using GAD7, uh, PHQ9 and SWEMWEBS. Um, 80% of people saw an improvement on their GAD7 score. Uh, 85% saw an improvement on their PHQ9 score and 95% saw Do you know those acronyms? So GAD7, General Anxiety Disorder. Yes. Um, can you break the other two down for, for listeners as well? Patient health questionnaire nine. That makes sense. Um, so it's, it's a depression test questionnaire. So it doesn't really yes. give much away, patient health questionnaire. It could be about diabetes yeah. or anything. No, that one focuses on low mood and depression. And then SwemWebs focuses on um, well, general well-being. So those questions are positively phrased as opposed to negatively phrased. So that's the short version of the Warwickshire Edinburgh yes. Mental Wellbeing Scale. So because yes. the... The long version has 14 measures. So yes. how many does that one have? Do you know? I think it has eight, seven or eight. Yeah, because we use the, let me count, one, two, three, four, five, seven of them. Yeah, yeah. So we use um, very similar ones, all again with, with yeah. acronyms. We use the WEMS, so mm-hmm. the full like, Warwickshire yeah. Edinburgh Mental Wellbeing Scale. We also use something which is called SWL, Satisfaction mm. with Life, which measures someone's satisfaction with their current life situation. Yeah. And then we use something called a Wheel of Life, which measures... Um, I think 10 areas. Again, mm. when you look at it on paper, you, you look at it and you, th- the, I think it's yeah. 10 areas, but or maybe eight areas. Uh, maybe eight, because it's in a circle that's broken down. Yeah. So eight would make sense. And they rate different areas of their life. So family, uh, career, you know, uh, friends, stuff like that. They rate them from zero to 10. Yeah. And so we also use the Oxford Happiness Survey, but we mm. use like a revised version that's got a less amount of questions. And so for our 90 day course that that we run, the last bunch of statistics that came in from that, we had a 59% increase across the WEMS, a 44.8% increase in the Wheel of Life and a 46.45 increase mm. in the Satisfaction with Life. So, if, you know, if you round off, off that a little bit, we're basically we're making f- people 50% happier yeah, across the board. Definitely. And then we also have like our group canoeing mountain walks, cold water therapy, abseiling, mm. that are typically three-hour activities. Group canoeing, there was an 18% increase in well-being. Mm. The mountain walks, there was a 25% increase in well-being. The cold water therapy, there was 15.44% increase in well-being. And then the abseil, there was a 32% increase in well-being. 
And um, yeah, so they're our statistics. Yeah. I thought we'd throw them in whilst we were talking about Absolutely. them. Because I've not found anywhere to throw them into any of the, the podcast Absolutely. episodes yet. Amazing. And we, we've got some criticism, you know, from that, like that group canoeing thing mm. of, of 18% increase. And people are like, oh, that's not that good. And well, it's a three hour activity. Yeah. And you're feeling 20% better essentially Absolutely. than what you did when you got there. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, I, I think that shows kind of the difference in, I think this shows how statistics can be interpreted differently because the numbers I've given, obviously the 80%, 85%, those are not the amount of increase. Those are the sort of percentage of people who have had that that change. Um, an 18% increase in, in well-being after a three hour activity sounds amazing um and those people you know if those people are we can kind of dumb it down a little bit and say that they're feeling 18 percent better that's an amazing thing that's a huge improvement especially over you know over three hours exactly um, and, and again people when they you know join our stuff which is very sometimes throwing people into the deep end of, yeah. of abseiling off of um a bridge or going out to do we did a it was meant to be three hours long. It was meant to be mm. a canoe on the River Trent. And the River Trent moves at two, three miles an hour as mm. a constant when you're sat in the boat. And we went, ended up on the on a canal, which against the headwinds, so you had the wind coming at mm. you and there's no constant movement already on a canal. And it ended up being about six and a half hours, this canoe. Wow. And it was absolutely shattering. And, yeah. and, and you know, even as the, the staff team, yeah. we was like, yeah, this is miserable. Mm. And so a lot of people off of that, they, they decreased. Mm. And then when we measured them, afterwards like looking yeah. back a lot of them then took lessons from it but yeah. they still wasn't as happy about it because you know again it didn't Fair. meet the expectations of the reality a lot Fair. of them had plans but when you're on a canal you know a limited you, amount you can do yeah, so yeah. You, you, and what do you do do you get halfway and then go well i'm gonna go i'm gonna go yeah, back now i'm gonna leave you might as well go the rest of the halfway and Definitely. so there's an example of you know we can't always as well control all the areas of people's life because there's so many extraneous variables that are impacting that yeah. person's well-being at any one time Absolutely. and we spoke about a couple of them benefits um you know even social issues yeah. as we spoke about like uh, sexuality and, and gender and all these things that could be happening to a person that, that we're not in control Absolutely. of at all um and so i think these statistics whilst they're important in a way and they help you get things like funding and yeah. show an overall general picture they're definitely not representative and not qualitative enough to be able to give a description of what it is that that we provide certain individuals. Absolutely. Um, I'll I'll I have a couple couple other statistics, and then I'll I'll tell a story that kind of is is around that um, that idea. Um, so in terms of satisfaction, as of again as of August, we had a nine point five out of ten um, average satisfaction rating, and a hundred percent of those who had submitted the feedback said they would recommend the service for somebody else. So well, you can't get any better than that. Can't that's, get any better than that. I don't. I think that may have gone down a tiny bit since then, but it really does show sort of what people have gotten out of the service. I think you're completely right about those. Um, you know, outcome measures not necessarily showing us the whole picture. When we're working with individuals, there can be other markers of progress. I was working with somebody a while ago um, who was dealing with addiction issues around alcohol um, and they knew they needed to do something about it, but were finding it really, really difficult. And they came to, at the time, Act Monitoring, now Supported Self-Help, they came to Supported Self-Help um to talk about some of their anxiety issues and uh obviously that was all tied in with the uh the substance use um and we spent quite a few weeks talking about you know dealing with anxiety and all of that but we also talked about 
doing a referral to Turning Point to address the the alcohol dependency. And at the end of the program, their well-being scores were lower. It was worse, but they were at a point where they were ready to do that referral to Turning Point. Um, so their anxiety was higher. Their PHQ-9, their, their sort of the low mood indicators were a little bit higher but a lot of that was because they were gearing themselves up to do something really hard that was going to be a positive thing for their well-being in the long term and seek further support for that particular issue that they were facing. So I think that really demonstrates how it isn't always, um, you can look at those scores and not necessarily see the whole picture. And I guess then that question is which outcome is better? Is it yeah. the outcome of that they're in that position or is it that their scores... Uh, are a little bit low and, and yeah. to me it's always if you've put them in a in a point where they're ready to tack on the life issues that are affecting them the most head yeah. on then of course the outcome's better than than some numbers on a page so. yeah no it, definitely thinking long term I suppose and thinking about their long-term well-being because yes you know of course her anxiety was higher she's doing a really scary thing um but hopefully long term that will come out better than if that wasn't dealt with so and so you as a as a professional or, mm. or even just as a human, what would mm -hmm. you say are the first steps? I always get criticized of saying as a human, um, <laughs> like people are like, why do you say that? Like, they don't mean in a horrible way, but mm. people think that asking someone as a human. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, I get what you mean. But uh, what, step, what are the first steps that you think that someone should do if they are starting to identify that they may need mental health support? And that can be in relation to your service or just as a whole, or you can do both. Absolutely. If somebody is sort of starting to notice that they, um, they're experiencing, you know, symptoms of, of mental ill health. Firstly, honestly, I would say talk to the people around you. Obviously, if they are safe people to talk to and you know that they, you know, they're not going to react really badly. I think talking to friends and family can be such an important part of, feeling better and getting that support and I think if you talk to the people around you it's then easier to take the next steps those next steps might be accessing a service like supported self-help um you know I I would absolutely say if you're starting to experience that get in touch with LLR Mind self-refer to the to the supported self-help service that is exactly what we're set up to do we're there to give you coping strategies and work with you to build that toolkit um alongside talking to friends talking to family going to the gp if if it gets to that point and if you're finding it's really affecting you know your day-to-day -day, or it's just something you're worried about go to the gp talk to them about it they might refer you into a service such as ours um but it kind of gets you gets you going in the right direction and gets you moving towards getting the support that you you need because it's really hard to do this stuff completely in isolation I don't necessarily think it's always possible to improve your mental health in isolation but if you get that community around you whether that community be sort of your personal relationships or whether it is a service like ours I think that is the way to improve things so yeah I would just say reach out for help wherever that help comes from if that's something you're worried about. What is it then that, that you do to look after your own mental health? Do you have any strategies or things mm. that you can recommend? Yeah, I was, sometimes I feel like a hypocrite because I talk to people about all these strategies and all these mindfulness strategies and, and all people these expect breathing you to strategies. Know them so well and and I'm like, <laughs> I haven't meditated in several months. Um, 
I I have I've in the past dealt with quite severe anxiety and I know that it's something that I have to be careful about first on firstly I make sure that I'm not overloading myself I need I know I need breaks I know I need time to not be doing anything working and doing uni at the same time I may have made some interesting choices on that but I really I do think about my schedule and I think about what I've got going on um I talk to people I talk to my friends I talk to my family I talk to my colleagues um my manager like about the things that I've got going on and if I'm anxious about something I talk to somebody about it and nine times out of ten after that I feel much better because it helps me put it in perspective um I also do practice breathing techniques. I the the one that I find works for me the best because it's really simple is just if your out breath is longer than your in breath that calms you down and it can slow your heart rate, slow your breathing. So when I'm when I'm starting to feel anxious, I just remember breathe out slower than I'm breathing in. Um and that can have a really big effect. But yeah, there are all sorts of things. I try and exercise. I'm not very good at it. I suggest, you know, as part of the supported self-help program, some of the stuff, particularly around low mood and depression, focuses on activity and doing an amount of activity each day to to kind of get those, you know, get those good chemicals going and all of that. Um, do I do that? Probably not. Should I? I try to. Um, but yeah, I just I just talk about it. I think that's the main thing that's really helped for me is talking to, you know, not hiding this stuff and not being afraid to to talk about when you're having a hard time because it just makes everything so much easier. Um, and other people might have stuff that's worked for them that you can learn about and that might work for you. So, yeah. And, and I also steal stuff from the supported self-help workbooks all the time. It's like there's a bunch of really great mindfulness exercises that when I really need one, I'm like, I'm going to do that mindfulness exercise there's a there's one exercise which involves making yourself a hot drink um and putting the hot drink on the table in front of you and really experiencing that drink with all of your senses so first feeling it feeling the warmth of it feeling the mug going forward you know how does it taste how does it smell all of that stuff and I do that occasionally so it's a real real mindfulness of being present in every single sense of the word absolutely being present in the moment with your senses and that can really short circuit if I'm worrying about something that might happen next week or thinking like oh why did I say that two weeks ago that was so stupid it really grounds me in the moment and that's something that I got directly out of the the mindfulness um, materials from supported self-help and in DBC we look at things similar to that Mm. like if you're in a particular emotion or sensation how can you replace it with something else and that can be uh, you know in, in terms of getting your mind out of it to do something such as listening to music. Yeah. And, and these things that so some people listening will sound so simple. Mm. And it's not that we're, you know, trying to reinvent the wheel or, or trying to rewire people's brains with complicated language yeah. and get them to think about, you know, past relationships. Mm. Sometimes it's pointing out the obvious that people neglect when they're in that sense of yeah. lack of self-care. Absolutely. Um, and, but it, it's really interesting that you say about people expect you as, as this person to be able to mm. do all these techniques. And I find that very interesting in, in all areas of life. So I do some pre-hospital care as well. Yeah. Do I have a first aid kit at home? No. And and so people expect you all the time, the career that you do to be like a mastery of it yeah. within the self. But that, I think that can come of, of two ways. One, you get sick of 
doing the things you do at work so mm. you don't want to do it at home and I had I have a cousin who's a gynecologist mm. and they don't want kids because they're sick of dealing <laughs> with with all the things that come with that they know everything um, that can happen yeah yeah, yeah. And, no I understand that sometimes I think the people that need alternative support mechanisms mm. are the people that do the job themselves mm. because they're so engrossed in those traditional things that would be usually prescribed as such that they need alternative things such as such as adventure therapy that the Lego project offers <laughs> um, and so we do find ourselves self-supporting a lot more professionals than mm. we do actually uh, general clientele because it's really hard for our program for people to come on board if they're not at a point where they're ready to go yeah because how can you have someone with anxiety that's suddenly ready to stand on top of a bridge with a group of people and lower themselves 80 foot absolutely and, and so yeah we find a, a very different type of person come to the adventure therapy mm. than we do the the, the classroom sessions essentially yeah that, that is a very well-rounded conversation mm. and you are a very good talker and I've just been happy to sit here and listen to you and I've learned so much about Mind LLR and especially what it is that you do um, this is sent out to all professionals within the Northwest Leicestershire mm-hmm. circuit so a lot of them will also be hearing what you're saying and hopefully Amazing. they can refer into it at the different GPs absolutely and the different services is there anything else that you want to to touch on? Actually, I have one last question, mm-hmm. which just popped into my head, which is waiting list. Do you guys yeah. have a waiting list at the moment? At the moment, we are contacting everybody who is referred within five working days um, for an engagement call. Um, and then we're getting everybody booked in for an assessment within six weeks. So we don't really have a waiting list at the moment people are being booked in for assessments very quickly and then assessment to um actual follow-up sessions usually the follow-up sessions start the next week so no real waiting list at the moment just it might be a little bit of time when we book you in it might not be that your assessment is for up to six weeks well, thank you very much. And Isabel May from Mind LLR, thank you very much for being a guest on the Leg Up podcast. And uh, just a, as a reminder, what is the website for everyone where they can find uh, Mind LLR? That is LLRmind.org. Thank you very much. Thank you.